chapter 8. We're going to read the first seven verses, and then we'll um, get into this. Uh, ho hopefully, you know, you read ahead. I know I give you guys homework assignments. Hopefully, you've been reading the whole book of Hosea. Uh, and um, it, this is one of those books that not only is, is heart-wrenching, um, but it, but it's so rejuvenating at the same exact time. Uh, the faithfulness of God to an unfaithful people. The faithfulness of Hosea to an unfaithful wife by the name of, of Gomer. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Put the trumpet to your mouth. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of Yahweh, because they have trespassed against my covenant and transgressed against my law. They cry out to me, My God, we of Israel know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, uh, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this, a craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be smashed to splinters, for they sow the wind and they, they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no growth, it makes no flower. Should it make anything, strangers would swallow it up. And so, Father, as we approach this magnificent text, these next three chapters as we we go through them, I ask that you would just speak so clearly to us. There's so many prophetic words, not, not only in chapters 8, uh, 9, and 10, but also throughout the book of Hosea, but also even references that we, we read and we say, oh, that's where it's at. And so, Lord, as we approach this amazing book of Hosea, this, this book of salvation, this book of you being faithful to us and your people, Israel, despite the fact that they are not faithful to you, despite the fact of their idolatry and their adultery at the same exact time. So, Lord, as Kat prayed, let this challenge our hearts as well, that we would um, recognize ourselves in in Gomer and in Israel, that we too are unfaithful at times and turn our back on you and would rather entertain other idols in our lives rather than coming before the one who is living and strong and almighty. And as we've been reading in the this version of the Bible, Yahweh, your name, faithful to the end. So, Lord, guide us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hosea is one of those books. And, and we, when we first started Hosea about a, a month ago, and, and we've, we've been going through uh, the whole Bible. We started, I don't know, 12 years ago in the book of Genesis. And, uh, you know, I've had the privilege of going through the starting in Psalms and then going through um, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations, Ezekiel, and now. Uh, after Daniel, we're in the Minor Prophets. And these books are very, very short. Uh, Hosea being the second largest of those Minor Prophets. But most of these Minor Prophets are boom, boom, boom. If you miss a week, you miss it. You know, and, and it's one of those things as you go through uh, the Minor Prophets, you find out that the Minor Prophets are actually major. The Minor Prophets are very, very important. Especially this first of the minor prophets, we, we saw the very uh, first three chapters are all dedicated to who Hosea was as a prophet of God. It's the only prophet in the entire Bible where we actually get the names of his kid, the names of his wife, right? Uh, we get this, his family life in graphic detail. The very first time 
God comes to Hosea, what does he tell him to do? Go marry an unfaithful wife that you know is going to be unfaithful to you. That, that, that you know is going to go off and commit harlotry with other people, other men in the same town where you live. And then in chapter 3, what does God tell him to do? Buy her back. To, to pay your wife to stay with you. I mean, I mean, just horrific, right? To, to pay a spouse to stay with you. It doesn't matter the gender, right? It, whether it's your, your husband or, or your wife, it, most people want a divorce, right? But what does Hosea do? And he has to be like God with Israel, with us and redeem his own wife to live with them. Now in chapter 8, we're in the prophetic section where we're, we're seeing uh, this nation of Israel and this, this synonymous word, this synonymous name with Israel, this name Ephraim, okay? And, and remember from last week, we were, really went into in-depth in who Ephraim was, and uh, I don't have time to go through it every single uh, week, uh, you can always uh, look up the previous uh, week's uh, study. Uh, but Ephraim, being the youngest son of Joseph, being blessed by his grandpa to be the uh, more blessed of the blessed son, he now becomes the majority tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel after this split that happened after Solomon. And so now, whenever we see Israel, there's this crying in the heart of God, come back to me. In fact, what is the very first phrase that we read in verse 8? Put the trumpet to your mouth. That, that call of the trumpet, that loud instrument, that instrument of warning, that instrument of call, that instrument of instruction within a, the army of uh, that time, like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of Yahweh because they have transgressed against my covenant and transgressed against my law. We've seen the uh, equality between idolatry and adultery that Hosea brings out, whenever I turn my eyes upon anyone or anything else other than God, I put that person or that thing before God, what am I doing to my relationship with God? We're committing adultery to, to the God of the universe who is married to the church. This is the cry that Hosea is calling uh, fourth, and remember that Hosea's name literally means salvation, just like Joshua and Jesus in the New Testament as well. They, they cry out to me, my God, we of Israel know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. Just like any of us, we, we can easily have lip service to God. But does God know the heart? Even better than us, by the way. Uh, what, what is the heart of the Israelites? And remember last week, they had set up two different uh, golden calves, one up in Dan, one in Bethel. And Jeroboam, the first of the northern kings, the first of the Israelite kings, coming from the tribe of Ephraim, by the way, he, he, he devises in his own heart, well, if I put up these two golden calves, uh, then they won't go back to Jerusalem and worship the real God. They, they won't go down to Jerusalem and then, you know, they'll worship God and then they'll, they'll say, oh, I want to be reunited with my relatives again. I, I want to be reunited with the other tribes again. And, and they'll somehow come back together. And so these idols not only have taken them away, their heart away from a God himself, but also as a unified nation, which God had always planned for Israel, the 12 tribes to be united as one nation. 
And now during this time, during the time of Hosea, and also when we get to the book of Amos as well, it's a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom has separated from uh, the south. And that's exactly what it says in verse 4. They have set up kings, but not by me. Where were all the kings supposed to come from? Which lineage were the kings supposed to come from? David. They were supposed to come from Judah and through the line of David. Yes, the tribe of Judah through the line of David. And that's where all the southern kings come from, but the northern kings don't. In fact, all the northern kings come from uh, the tribe of Ephraim. They start out with Jeroboam, and then it switches to another uh, lineage about halfway through. But they all come from Ephraim, the, the northern tribe in Samaria, by the way, the capital. We'll talk more about that when we get to the next verse. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. What happens whenever I put anything before God? Yeah, it's adultery. This idolatry that we're seeing as synonymous with uh, adultery. We don't think of it like that, though. We, we never think of it like that. We, we just think of it as, you know, something to fill my time or something that, you know, is more important than my relationship with God. We don't look at it the same way that, that God does. And in fact, in, in verse 5 there, it says, He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? Have you ever um, lost your ability to blush? This is one of those passages that, that's extremely important in terms of what sin and is specifically idolatry does to our innocence. It's those things that your your heart just gets used to or, or your your mind gets used to or your your soul slowly gets used those things that used to offend you <clears throat> now you just take and stride or god forbid we even laugh at or we even participate in this, this is the loss of innocence this is what happened uh, to adam and eve when they first sinned this is what happens to us when we slowly, our, our heart becomes calloused over time. The, the hard-hearted, stiff-necked people of the nation of Israel. And what is the, tr the, the capital city or the city that is mentioned in verse 5? Again, synonymous with Israel, Samaria. But by the way, what did Jesus do in the New Testament when he was walking through the northern territory? He would come through and he would purposely go to a certain city and there was a woman by the well. What was the name of that city? Samaria. Exactly the same place. And who does God still reach out to? The unfaithful. What was that woman at the well? What was she known for? Yeah. She, she, she had already been married to six other guys and was with another guy and not married to him, right? Synonymous with unfaithfulness. And who is the one that reaches out to her? In fact, spends time with her, actually talks with her. Jesus does. The same exact city. It's amazing when you, you know, go through the, the scriptures and normally when we, you know, read the Old Testament, especially, or, or the prophets or the minor prophets, we're, we're normally just reading through them. You know, we have to put that check, you know, on our, you know, list of things that we have to read for that yearly program that we have to go through to finish the Bible in a year, right? Uh, it, rather than studying uh, the Bible, we miss a lot of this the flavor of what Hosea is bringing out. This is all prophetic. Because who is Jesus going to reach out to? The unfaithful. The Samaritan. 
the people that themselves have committed adultery as well. Uh, verse 6, for from Israel is even this, a craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be smashed to splinters. Remember, these two calves had been set up, one in the northern area, Dan, the northernmost tribe, and then uh, Bethel, which means house of God, by the way. And, and then this, this golden calves are reminiscent going all the way back to the very first time a golden calf was made. You guys remember when that was, right? Uh, Aaron, right? Moses' brother, after he had, Moses had been up there on the mountain, what, what had Aaron done with all that jewelry, by the way, that they had plundered from the Egyptians? He threw it into the fire, and what did he say? Oh, this, this calf just came out, right? You know, just popped out of the fire, right? That's what he said. Uh, and, and the people, by the way, made me do it, too. What happened to that calf? What did Moses make them do to that calf? First, he made them grind it up, and then he made them put it in water, and then what did he make them do? Drink it. Drink your God. Drink your God. This, this is the same illusion now that we see in verse 6, because what is God telling them to do to their golden calves? Break them apart. Splinter them apart. Grind them. What's the best way to get rid of an idol? Destroy it. Get it out of your life. Get it out of your life. Don't go the same direction when you come home. Don't, don't go the same way. Go a different direction. Get all those temptations out of your house. Right? That, that's the way you do it. That's the way God is telling them to do it. And then this phrase in chapter in verse seven, and and when I read it, you know, uh, you you probably you know when you when you read it, when we read it together in verse seven here, uh, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. You've probably heard that phrase, even if you've never read Hosea before. In fact, it's all throughout literature in our not only in America but also in in British literature as well. It, it's in Shakespeare, it's in multiple forms. It's not only in autobiographies, but it's also in fiction. It's even in Star Trek too, by the way. The, 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 this phrase that many people use, they have no idea where it comes from. And you're here tonight to find out where it's from. It's from the book of Hosea. Who wrote that phrase first? God did. God did. And every time we come to a phrase like this, especially as we've been going through the more obscure parts of the Old Testament, you know, I always love bringing these things out. But what does it mean to sow the wind and reap the whirlwind? Have you ever, you know, um, planted something? You know, where, where, do you, where are you supposed to plant something? Yeah, hopefully in soil, right? In dirt, right? And hopefully it's supposed to be fertilized and all that kind of stuff. What, what is the reference here is when I sow to this form of wind, what comes back? A whirlwind. We don't have a lot of whirlwinds in Bakersfield. It's very obscure to us. Uh, but a whirlwind is like a tornado, right? It, it's this massive wind that, that compounds upon itself, a, a high pressure and a low pressure coming together. And what happens when those little winds come together, what do they form? A vortex that can destroy and suck up houses and roofs and trees and animals and people, right? Destruction. This is the illustration here. When I, when I sow something that I, I may think that's little, it's just a, a little wind. It's just something that's little in terms of sin or idolatry. What is it? come back to us as something that's destructive more than we bargain for something that's actually bigger or the other illustration that it says here it makes no or excuse me the standing grain has no growth makes no flower should it make anything strangers would swallow it up if you don't understand that reference of the wind to the whirlwind then we all understand that the grain to the flower 
What happens if there's no grain? There's no flour. Can't have flour if you don't have grain. Now, we're kind of oblivious to that in our society, but, but you understand the reference because you have to have grain or wheat in order to have flour. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 8, it says, He who sows unrighteousness will reap iniquity, and the rod of his fury will end. Even going all the way back to the Proverbs, Israel has sown chaos, and they will reap even more chaos to themselves and even their children. All her efforts directed towards self-preservation would be self-destructive. Have you ever done that in your own life? Can we be in Israel? Can we be a gomer? Can we be unfaithful just like them? Thank God for his grace, mercy, his faithfulness to us. Verse 8, it says, Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey all alone. Ephraim has hired lovers, even though they hire allies among the nations. Now I will gather them up and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the kings of the princes. Not only have they prostituted themselves out, been unfaithful with other idols, other gods, but also with other nations as well. And the nation that they're trying to get on the good side of or ally themselves with is this nation called Assyria. Now, if you were with us when we were going uh, through the book of Isaiah, we saw this a lot, this reference to Assyria. Uh, Assyria uh, came not only to the nation of Israel in the north, but also to Judah in the south. They tried to conquer Judah, but they were unsuccessful during the time of King uh, Hezekiah. But when they come to Israel in 722 B.C., they're literally going to wipe them off the face of the earth. The, the Israelite nation is going to be absorbed and then scattered throughout the Assyrian territory. And when they do, as the Assyrians would do, they would purposely uh, not only integrate a nation or a society within other nations so that when they would come back or try to reassimilate, they would come back as half-breed, no, no longer full-blooded whatever nation they were. So when the Israelites come back, they're going to come back as Samaritan, living in the same place, the same capital, by the way, Samaria. Of course, all these references to Ephraim, as we talked about last week, are all synonymous with the northern kingdom. Uh, of Israel, verse 11, since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. Uh, though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are counted as a strange thing. The, the word of God that was once important to them, in fact, defined them as a nation. They were the only nation on the planet that God gave his words to. The Old Testament, right? It was to the Jews. It was to the Israelites. And what do they treat it like? As if it's some foreign document. As if it's not applicable to them. Do you notice a similarity? We do the same thing in our own country, by the way. Hosea 6.6, 6, going back to two weeks ago, for I delight in loving kindness rather than sacrifice and in knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. What does God want from us? Does he want us to memorize the whole Bible? No, he wants our, yeah. he wants our, our heart, right? As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh, they eat it, but Yahweh has not accepted them. Now we will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. So Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. 
but I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwelling. What's going to happen to even the nice mansions in Israel? It's all going to be destroyed. Just a, a prelude to when we get to Amos. Both, both Amos and Hosea were written to the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, of all the minor prophets, those two were for the, the northern kingdom. Most of the others are to uh, the nation of Judah. Uh, but, but both of these uh, books that we're going to be reading, they're, they're going to describe how the Assyrians treated their captives. They were not nice. In fact, they were known as a, a nation that would, you know, literally cause torture to those that they captured. Uh, I, I don't want to spoil it too much uh, for you. If you read the book of Amos, it's very, very, very graphic, very, very descriptive, very, very violent. Uh, but they would come in and literally destroy a nation, ravage it to the ground. Not not treating these you know nice mansions as as something to be kept or these palaces as something to be preserved, right? They would completely demolish them, completely destroy them, and to the people they even committed worse acts. But but in verse thirteen, and this is now the segue to ver chapter nine here. Uh, that this verse thirteen is very very important. Because what are they doing when they sacrifice to, quote-unquote, God? They, they, they've conglomerated not only the, you know, the, the, the golden calves, but they've brought in the Baals and the Ashtoreths and, and the various gods of the Canaanites and the Ammonites and the Amorites and all these other ites that they've kind of conglomerated into a single religion, including Yahweh, including God. Okay? What does God do with those sacrifices? It's very, very clear. Does God have a standard for worship? He does. I can't just come flippantly before the Lord. I, I, I can't just come and, and decide, oh, I'm going to worship God this way or that way. Now, thank God that he looks at our hearts. You know, and, and, you know, it's not our outward appearance. It's not how we're, we're dressed. I forgot to shave today. It's okay. Totally fine. I know no, none of you noticed it until now. Yeah. That means it doesn't. I, lo I love it. I love it when Vasilios comes in unshaven because I can say to him, you know, I looked like that an hour ago. You know, of course, he's Greek, so he has better, you know, uh, hair follicles than I do, you know, so which is which is great. But, but you understand God doesn't look at the outward appearance, okay? That, that, that's not what we're talking about here. He looks at the heart. But when I come in to worship the Lord and my heart is distracted, I, I come in with those, those thoughts that, you know, whether it's, you know, the facade that we have, and we do it a lot of times, especially in church, that facade that we have, that, that you know, um, you know, outer appearance that appears holy on the outside, but in actuality on the inside, we're, you know, have our distractions. We, 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 you know, are thinking of other things. God wants us to focus upon him when we worship him. God, God always wants our uh, heart. In fact, what does God say about their sacrifices that they've made? They, they sacrifice it and they eat it, but Yahweh has not accepted them. It, it's all those people with, you know, the, the huge amounts of money that they, you know, give for the tithe. Jesus is pointing them out, by the way. And what does he say about that one little uh, mite that the widow gives? And only, only Jesus knows the, the hearts. The disciples didn't know the hearts. I don't know your hearts. I, I don't know anything like that. Only God does, okay? 100%. But what does Jesus point out about all those people in that service? She gave it all. She gave it all. That widow. Chapter 9, verse 1. Do not be glad, O Israel, with rejoicing like the peoples. For you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. 
You have loved harlots' earnings on every uh, threshing floor. Uh, Hosea is a very adult book. Hosea does not mince words. It doesn't sugarcoat sin. It calls it for what it is. And what has Israel done? They've literally prostituted themselves out to other nations and other gods. And, and God calls it for what it is. He, he doesn't call it an oops. He doesn't call it a my bad. He doesn't call it a oh, just a mistake. No, he calls it for what it is. It's, it's harlotry. We don't like to talk about it, but when the Bible brings it up, it's very, very important. The threshing floor and the wine press will not feed them, and the new wine will deceive them. Uh, they will not remain in the land of Yahweh, but Ephraim will return to Egypt, and in Assyria they will eat unclean food. Uh, they will not pour out drink offerings of wine to Yahweh. Their sacrifices will not please him. Their bread will be like mourner's bread. All who eat of it will be defiled for their bread will be for themselves alone. When they go into captivity, will they have the temple anymore? No, we talked about that when we were in the book of Ezekiel, when they're there by the river Kibar, uh, as Ezekiel is a priest without a, a temple at the age of 30, when he's supposed to be serving back in Jerusalem in the temple, they're now in a foreign country without a temple. In fact, the temple had been destroyed. This is what God is telling them. Your sin not only has separated you from me, but it has removed you from the house of God. In fact, judgment always comes first to the house of God. The last phrase there of verse 4, what does it say? It will not enter the house of Yahweh. What will you do in the day of the appointed festival? On, on the day of the, the feast of Yahweh, these, these feasts that were supposed to be reminders of what God had done for them. The day of Yom Kippur, uh, the Passover, the various fall feasts that would take place where they would remember what God had done for them. And they would go to uh, the temple or the synagogue and they would worship God and they would celebrate. They would literally celebrate with their families and friends. Are they going to be able to do that when they're in captivity? No. It's going to be taken all away from them. For behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Weeds will possess their desirable items of silver. Thorns will be in their uh, tents. This isn't Tennessee that it's talking about. This is, and we, we saw this when we also in, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and uh, Ezekiel, this reference to this, this city of Memphis that first was part of the Assyrian Empire and then later on is part of the Babylonian Empire as well. But have you ever, you know, planted something, what we were talking about earlier, and, and we're supposed to plant it in, in soil and, and hopefully when we plant that plant, whatever it may be, and, and we want it to grow, what also grows? And, and as it says here, thorns too. And, and when an area of land is no longer cultivated or taken care of, what happens to that land? What happens to the field? We get it all the time in Bakersfield. They're called tumbleweeds. Right? Exactly. Thorns, you know. You know, I, I grew up in Fontana and we, I mean, literally, uh, you know, these massive tumbleweeds that were bigger than cars would go rolling down the street. You know, it was horrendous. Uh, but, but that's what happens when a uh, piece of land is no longer cultivated. This is what's going to happen to Israel because they are taken captive. They are being put into captivity in another country, and the land will no longer be uh, cultivated. But more importantly, their joy is going to be turned into mourning. Instead of growing the good things, what's going to happen instead? Yeah, the weeds and the thorns are going to grow up. Verse 7, days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come. Again, that word is plural, day, D-A-Y-S. 
let Israel know this. The prophet is an ignorant fool, and the inspired man has madness because of the abundance of your iniquity and because your hostility has abounded. Remember, they've out the nations. They, they've out those other countries around them. The abundance of iniquity, hostility. What does it call the prophets, by the way? Those false prophets, and Ezekiel was very, very harsh on the false prophets, but, but what does Hosea call the false prophets? They're ignorant fools. Just like the book of Proverbs calls, you know, people that turn away from the Lord, just they're fools. Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet, yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways, and there is only hostility in the house of his God. They have dug deep in corruption as in the days of Gabeah. Uh, he will remember their iniquity. He will punish their uh, sins. We talked about this when we were in the book of Ezekiel as well. What is the what is the job of a watchman? It's in the name watch. It's called the watch and warn, right? Watch and warn. Is Ephraim doing that? Is the nation of Israel doing that? No. You see, Ephraim was blessed. They were the most blessed out of all the tribes. Even even Joseph getting two of the tribes, Ephraim and, and Manasseh, and, and Ephraim being the younger son, getting that, that even greater blessing himself, and now being referenced in this you know whole book uh, completely uh, 37 times in the book of, of Hosea, he has been blessed and blessed and blessed, and what has he done with the blessings? He's given them up. You dig down deep into their heart, and what do you find? Corruption. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season, uh, but they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no fragrance. fragrance a pregnancy and no uh, conception. We, we, we saw earlier this agricultural reference to uh, devastation, to destruction, uh, to futility and corruption. And now we see um, uh, human rebirth or, or human, you know, pregnancy. What, what is the womb meant for? What, what is the womb meant for? It's life. It's meant for life, right? It's designed to produce life, right? In fact, this whole paragraph is all about how God nourishes us as a, you know, a, a father to his children, but as, as, as a husband to his wife, but also as a, a mother to her children. We understand this as Christians. Where does life start? Starts in the womb, right? At, at conception. But what happens when there is no birth, no pregnancy, and no conception? Is there life? No. By definition, there can't be. There, there can't be a life. It continues on. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. Surely woe to them indeed when I depart from them. What is God going to do? Yeah, just as Hosea was called to do for a period of time, he's going to leave them to their sin. He's going to leave them to the corruption. He's going to leave them to uh, their destruction. <laughs> Excuse me. In verse 13, Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pasture like Tyre. But Ephraim will bring out his children for killing. Give them, O Yahweh, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breath. 
Is, is that truly the definition of death? No life. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. No way of, of feeding the baby when the breasts dry up. No way of, of carrying the baby to term with a miscarrying womb. I, I know it's very, very difficult, you know, to read this. And it's very difficult to, you know, kind of really understand it. But what does sin do to a life? It destroys it. It literally destroys it. Third, excuse me, at the end of verse 13 there, it says, but Ephraim will bring out his children for killing. There was a God in the northern kingdom, also in the southern kingdom, the whole, you know, nation did this. But there was a God called Molech. It was one of the most horrendous of all the gods, all the idols. And they would literally, you know, sacrifice. And we see this throughout, you know, the scriptures, not only in, in the prophets, but also in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles as well. But what they would do is they would heat up this, you know, this idol with its arms stretched out like this. And they would put their children on those arms after they had turned red with the heat and literally sacrifice their kids. What is Ephraim doing with his own children? Killing them. God has been so patient with them, of course. God has been so faithful to them. When they constantly thumb their noses at the Lord, oh, God is coming with judgment. God is coming with discipline. In fact, in verse 15 there, it says, All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. Because of the evil of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. We, we, they were testing God and testing God and testing God and testing God. And now God is causing discipline to happen to them. By the way, and we've seen this many, many times in the Old Testament, where there's where does uh, discipline first start? Where, where does punishment first start? Where, where does the discipline of the Lord first start? It starts in the house of God. Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will put to death the desirable ones of their womb. My God will despise them because they have not listened to him and they will be those who flee among the nations. This reference to Gilgal is very, very important. Uh, Gilgal was one of those cities that was pivotal throughout the history of the nation of Israel. In fact, this is the city where the nation of Israel camped before they crossed into the Promised Land. It was exactly opposite of Jericho, okay? In fact, in Joshua chapter 4, uh, verses 19 through 24, and you probably recognize this reference, you just don't remember where it was at, which most people don't, I, I didn't know. Uh, now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month, and they camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan Joshua set up at Gilgal. This is the place of remembrance. This is the place of the remembrance of God helping them cross the Jordan River into the promised land for the very first time as a nation during the time of Joshua. And so this, this reference here uh, to Gilgal, this place that was supposed to be a reference to Something that is good, something that is God giving them the land, what have they turned it to? Something of destruction and adultery and turning against God. In fact, those 12 stones 
that were there were supposed to be a, a memorial, right? They were supposed to be some sort of a memorial to uh, this event. But not only did that happen in Gilgal, but Gilgal was where Saul was crowned king. It was where the prophets lived during the time of Elijah and Elisha as well. In fact, when Elisha, after he had, you know, seen Elijah go up into that, uh, the fiery uh, chariot, this, this is where he came back to and, and ministered to the other prophets. This, this was supposed to be a place of holiness. This was supposed to be a place of serving the Lord, but what have they turned it into? Destruction, corruption, adultery. Chapter 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself, and more abundant his fruit, the more altars he abounded, the better his land, the better he made his sacred pillars. We, we all want that, you know, extra buck, right? That extra whatever number, however many zeros after the one, that extra $1,000, that extra $10,000, or that extra $100,000, or when I become a millionaire, then I will, and we have the goal, right? But your heart is now, because how you treat your possessions, your money, your things that you have now, it also determines how you're going to treat things in the future. We may not think that way, but it, more often than not, it becomes that way. This is exactly what the Israelites are doing. What are they doing with their extra money, with the, their prosperity? What are they doing with their finances? It says it there, when, when they make more fruit or when they make more produce or when, when they make more money, what do they do? They build more altars. When they, when they get better land, what do they do? They make more sacred pillars. They're prospering to sin. They're prospering to commit idolatry. Verse 2, their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. Yahweh will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillar. Does God hate their idol? Just as he hate, hates our idols today. And many times we don't think of it like this, but why does God uh, allow us to go through times of financial hardship? Or, or times where, you know, we, we, you know, don't have as much that we have to depend upon God. So he becomes our focus. So that he becomes our all in all. You see, the more Israel prospered, the more they sinned. Surely now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear Yahweh. As for the king, what can he do for us? They, they speak mere words. With worthless oaths, they cut covenants, and judgment flourishes like gall in the furrows of the field. I love the poetry here. I mean, it's really amazing how the, uh, and whether it's the New King James Version or in this, this version here, the Legacy Standard uh, Version, we're, we're going to be in this version until we finish the, the Minor Prophets. And the reason why is because you actually see the name of God uh, very clearly in in these in the minor prophets, uh, but but the this poetry that is brought out, the the with worthless oaths they cut covenants. When when God came to Abraham, he cut a covenant, right? When God came. To Noah, he cut a covenant. When God came to David, he cut a covenant. We, we call these the various covenants throughout the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the, the Davidic covenant, uh, you know, the, the, the new covenant. He 
cuts a covenant, and we do it every single time, the first Wednesday of the month, the first Sunday of the month. What does he cut the covenant in? It's always in blood. With Abraham, it was those animals that were split. God went down them. On the cross, it was his son that he cuts the new covenant. That every single time we, we take communion, it's the new covenant in my what? Blood. The blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, hopefully you'll be here in, in two weeks. It will, you know, uh, it, it, it's absolutely amazing just the privilege of being able to take communion uh, with you. Uh, but, but this covenant they're, they're cutting is, is not the same. What is it bound with? Worthless oath. You know they're going to break it. You know they're going to break it. It's the person that you knew in elementary school that always, you know, try to, to swear a promise or, or pinky swear or whatever it was, and they'd always break it. You'd never trust their word or it's the relative that you know or the friend that you know or someone that, from work that you know that every single time they promise something, you know it's going to be broken. You know it's worthless. It's the same thing with Israel. The dweller of Samaria will fear for the calf of Beth-Avon. Uh, indeed, its people will mourn for it. Its idolatrous priests will cry out over it, over its glory, since it has gone into exile with them. This word Beth-Avon, and, and remember, we've been learning a little bit, you know, Beth, every time we see the word Beth in the Bible, Bethlehem, or, or Beth-El, or, or these other places that we even Beth, Beth Peor that we saw earlier, that it always means house, okay? So Beth means house, and so something house, okay? Uh, Bethlehem is house of bread. Uh, this Beth Avon means house of vanity. It, it means nothing. When they make an oath, when they, when they do something, it's just vanity. It means nothing. It's the same reference that we see in the book of Ecclesiastes, a vanity of, of vanities. All is what? The thing itself will be carried to Assyria's tribute to King Jerob. Uh, Ephraim will receive shame and Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. Samaria will be ruined with her king like a stick on the surface of the water. Also the high places of Avon, Avon vanity. The sin of Israel will be eradicated. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us and the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gabeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of injustice overtake them in uh, Gabeah? So not only do we see this reference to the, the house of, of vanity, but all, we also see this reference to this town by the name of uh, Gabeah. This reference to this double guilt or this double sin. Remember, Ephraim was double blessed. And what have they done with that double blessing? They've turned it into sin. This reference to Gabeah was uh, one of the greatest, um, uh, you know, fornication events, if you will, that happened in the nation of Israel. The Israelites are, are there and, and, you know, there's this, you know, uh, curse that is put upon the Israelites. And where they literally go after other women uh, from other nations. Where, where they turn their hearts against God. The, the same reference that we see here with harlotry or fornication or idolatry. What's God going to do with that sin? He's going to bring upon them the double guilt of what they are. In fact, in verse 10, that's exactly what it says. When it is my desire, I will chastise them and the peoples will be gathered against them when they are bound for their double guilt. What happens when I have to pay for my own sin? 
What, what happens when Israel has to pay for their own sin? What happens when you have to pay for your own sin? Is that, is that a scary proposition, by the way? You're all Christians. You, you know who paid for your sins. But when, when that, you know, uh, literally, as it's showing here, where Israel is having to pay for their own sin. In fact, not, not just, you know, in a, in a you know, one-for-one one fashion, but double as well. Double guilt. Is that scary, by the way? Can I pay for my own sins? No one can. No, no, not a single person can pay for even one of their sins. I can't do it. No matter, no matter how much good I do, I can never outweigh the sin. Who, who's the only one that can pay for our sins? Always Jesus. Always Jesus. And th this is why the book of Hosea, this book that's titled Salvation, is so important. Because it points out our need for a Savior. The last paragraph here of this chapter. As an Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thrash or thresh. But I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. I will harness Ephraim. Judah will plow. Jacob will harrow for himself. I don't know if you under, really truly understand this agricultural reference here. When we get to the book of Amos, it's going to be very, very clear. But what, but, but what is God calling Israel? You're a cow. You're, you're, this, you're this cow that enjoys the threshing, which basically means that you have all this food before you and you're just glad to be there and you can eat whatever you want. Because normally when a, a cow or an animal was used for threshing, they would have a muzzle on their face and so they couldn't eat the, the food, okay? And so they would walk around and they would, you know, separate the the chaff and the 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 wheat. You know, they would separate it. Okay, and, and so or when they were going around and around with this big huge wheel, a a millstone, right? And they would crush the wheat, and they they weren't allowed to eat it. Of course, Israel is spoiled. Now what's going to happen to them? This, this beautiful cow, this beautiful heifer, this, this female cow, what's going to happen to it? When Assyria comes, are they going to treat it so nicely? They're going to put a yoke on its neck. They're going to make it work in the field. They're going to make it plow. We'll, we'll see more references to that later on. Verse 12, sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with loving kindness, break up your fallow ground. Indeed, it is time to seek Yahweh until he comes and rains righteousness on you. I love how this ends. We can get so caught up with the sin, but is there hope? Is there hope? Is there always hope? What is God calling them, the Israelites, these by nickname that God calls them hard-hearted, stiff-necked people, what is he telling them to do with their heart? Soften it. Break up that fallow ground. That, that ground that has sit for a long period of time, that, that ground that is hard, that is packed down, break it up. And what's the purpose of ground ground that's been you know tilled or broken up so it can be planted again so that life can come back by the way it's the opposite of the whirlwind that we saw two chapters before and no longer vanity it's something that is a life producing it's no longer the 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 womb that has has no conception and no birth and, and no way of producing life. It's something now that produces life. A hard heart is hard. A hard heart is calloused. A hard heart is dead. What does God want us to do with our heart? 
Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5, it says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You all know these verses. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also boast in our affliction. Highlight that verse, underline that verse. Why? Why, why would I boast in my affliction? Knowing that affliction brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not put to shame. A person with character, a person with hope, what do you know according to the Bible they've been through? Just go back. Affliction, trials, problems. They've had to rely upon God. They've had to rely upon Christ. This is, this is what God wants for all of his people, by the way. Unfortunately, many times we just shy away. We don't want it. But the amazing thing is, at the end of verse 5, it says, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. What does the Holy Spirit do in our affliction? He empowers us. He indwells us. He seals us. He's the comforter by name. Three verses left in Hosea chapter 10. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of deception because you have trusted in your way and in your abundant warrior. Instead of relying upon God, instead of breaking up their, their hard hearts, who have they trusted in? The hope is there. The, the choice is there. And it's the same, three, you know, what, 3,000 years later, 2,500 years later for us as well. Who do we trust in? It, this, the same is exactly true today. The word of God is always the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's always the same for them as well as for us. Do I have to break up my own fallow heart? My own hard heart. We all do. Verses 14 and 15. Therefore rumbling will arise among your people. All your fortifications will be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbal in the day of battle. When mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Horrific. We'll talk about this next week. And thus it will be done to you at Bethel. The house of God by the way. Because of your evil of evil, at the dawn of the king of Israel, will be completely ruined. What happens when I choose anything other than God? The wages of sin are, is it clear? Is it clear? Thank you, yes. There's hope in Jesus Christ. There's always hope in Jesus Christ. So hopefully as you read ahead, and, and again, hopefully we only have four more chapters left. Hopefully we'll, we'll finish this uh, uh, next week. But, but the picture in your mind is who is always faithful to the unfaithful? God is. Hosea just brings that on. just beautiful how, how the Bible brings that out, especially the book of Hosea. And so, Father, uh, tonight as we maybe don't understand all of this it, it's very can be very cryptic or removed from us not only in terms of geography but also in terms of of culture as well but help us to grasp these these small details that we see in these these passages the the, the privilege of knowing that you are the only way that you are always faithful to us that are that are sinners that you you're the one that redeemed us you're the one that that bought us uh, back with your your son's only blood you're you're the one that cut the covenant in your son's blood you're you're the one that is there every single second of every single day for us 
So, Lord, break up our hearts, make our, our hearts pliable and tender again. Massage our necks so that we can actually turn back to you. Help us to have that heart, that desire to grow closer to you. As we pray every single week, Lord, I ask you bless these, my friends, my, my family. And I ask that you help us to be used for your glory this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.